0: Yehuda Geberer with uh, another Jewish History Soundbites podcast um, just arrived back from another another trip. And although our trip was to Poland, but I couldn't help noticing that uh, this particular trip, um, which was for a, a shul, um, came together for a trip through their past. But this particular shul... Um, were mostly alumni of the Chevron Yeshiva in Yerushalayim. And it got me, again, thinking about that that wonderful topic of where does this Hebron Yeshiva come from? How did Slabatka Yeshiva in Lithuania and Lita become the Hebron Yeshiva of today? And how did the, how, how did that process take place? So if we go back to Lithuania, independent Lithuania, in between the wars following world war 1 after having been under the the rule of the russian czars the russian empire for so long lithuania regains its independence and what what, are, what is known as the yeshivas of lita of lithuania is actually mostly yeshivas which are located in independent poland in between the wars and if we are focusing on the ones that are actually in Lithuania in between the wars, there's pretty much four main yeshivas. The Slabatki yeshiva in Slabatka, which is a suburb of Kovna, Tels, Kelm, which was a small Musr yeshiva, and Panovizh. So those are the four main yeshivas. All the other famous Litvish yeshivas that we know of ended up on the other side of the border um, in Poland, in independent Poland, in the interwar period, in the Kersi region of Poland. And that's where those yeshivas were. So if we're in the Slavotki yeshiva, we're in, in Lithuania, and the Slavotki yeshiva gets restarted again after World War I. Um, during World War One, the Slovak yeshiva had gone into exile. Most of the students leave. It ends up first in Minsk, and then Kremenchung, in the Ukraine, during World War I, a story in itself, another yeshiva starts in Slabatka. This old Slabatka yeshiva, which was in Kremenchung, comes back. The yeshiva pulls itself together, never really reaching and attaining its former glory of pre-World War I days. But the yeshiva is getting back on its feet. The famous founder, the Alter of Slabatka, Rebnazim Zvi Finkel, is in charge the famous Rosh Hashiva, Mordechai, Mordechai Epstein is in charge, when all of a sudden in 1924, the beginning of 1924, the new Lithuanian government passes a law, or changes a law rather, updates the draft law, and the draft law no longer makes rabbinical seminaries exempt from the draft. Until then, rabbinical seminaries, which the four yeshivas in Lithuania fell under that category, were exempt from the draft, the military draft, and they rescinded that exemption. So so now what to do? Uh, But they did give a kavit that if these rabbinical seminaries were to incorporate certain secular studies and study of the Lithuanian language into their curriculum, then they would remain exempt from the draft. So now they either have a choice of going to the army, choice one, they have choice two, of um, incorporating secular studies into the curriculum, or choice three, figure out another way to solve the problem. So, what to do? Now, going to the army didn't seem like an option. Going to the army was rough, it's dangerous, it's mixing with the non-Jewish population, sometimes even anti-Semitic population, and more so it was dangerous for secularization, it was not really the appropriate atmosphere for someone who was going to be studying in a yeshiva, and therefore that didn't seem to be an option, secular studies for might might have been an option, and that's what, definitely what the tells Yeshiva ultimately um, succeeded in doing. They combined the yeshiva, the, the Tels Yeshiva. They combined the yeshiva for younger students, what was called the mechina, to the tells Yeshiva. They added in some secular subjects for the younger students. And to a certain extent, a limited amount, even for the older students, it was somewhat of a cover-up, somewhat of a real thing, and it ended up working until shortly afterwards the law was changed, and that was a way to, uh, to get out of the problem by incorporating secular studies into the curriculum. We do not know how Panovich and Kelm um, succeeded in getting around the draft, possibly They did it the way that Tells did it, because they definitely did not uh, run away like Slobodka did. Slabatka, the author of Slabatka said, no way we're having secular studies in our curriculum, and there's no way that we're uh, we're going to send our boys to the army. So we have to figure out a way out of this. And here's where they come up with this incredible decision to make aliyah, to move the yeshiva Teretz Yisrael. Up until that point, the idea of moving a religious educational institution, a yeshiva or anything of the sort, Teretz Yisrael was completely revolutionary. It had never been done, and um, this would have been a very big trailblazing act. Um, At this critical point in time, the two heads of the yeshiva are not present. They're not even there. Ramosh Mordechai Epstein is fundraising for the yeshiva in the United States and the altar of Sabbatko is recovering from an illness in a resort town in Germany. So they were, neither of them were physically there. Um, aliyah for the yeshiva was not an unheard of concept in the past. It had never been done. But Ramosh Mordechai Epstein, the yeshiva, had a long um, relationship with Eretz Yisrael and with the early parts of the Chibas Tzioin movement from when he was a student in Valazhin. Um, his wife's family, the Frank family, was involved in buying the original land for Chadera. and Ramesh Mordechai Epstein had invested with them and actually lived in Chadera for a short period of time before he went back to Lithuania and became the Rosh Hashiva in Slabotka. um His cousin, Rav Tzvi Pesach Frank, who was in Yerushalayim um, already, tried convincing him to come at the beginning of the Third Aliyah when they were still in the Ukraine. Immediately following World War One, he had tried to convince them to come to Israel, or Eretz Yisrael at that point already. And there was all these thoughts. The Altar of Slabotka had thought of retiring and moving to Eretz Yisrael like many of the elderly Bali Musr had done in their old age, such as Reb Itzala, Petterberger, and Rabbi Naftali Amsterdam, and the altar of Kelm's brother, and other great Musr elites had done and moved to the famous Chutzer Strauss housing complex near the old city of Yerushalayim. So the Alder Slobatke had thought of following in their footsteps, not to create a yeshiva, but to retire there, maybe with a small elite group of Talmidim and, 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 and live in Yerushalayim. There were all these thoughts, nothing had really been done about it, and now came this opportunity that was forced upon them quite suddenly by the Lithuanian government about maybe we should now take the opportunity to move we really need to protect our our guys our Talmudim from the this 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 threat of the draft um, so who actually made the decision it's unclear but the one who definitely became the main player there is very clear it was the prized Talmud, of the altar of Slavotka. And at the same time, he was also the son-in-law of Rabbi Shemotcha Epstein, Rabbi Chatzkel Sarna. Rabbi Chatzkel Sarna, Sarna, um, like we said, was a close Talmud on one hand of the altar and a close, and the son-in-law, excuse me, of the Meishem of the Mordechai Epstein. And now he is the one who kind of is carrying out the initiative of this plan. He is... Ultimately, sent to Eretz Yisrael to scout out places, and we'll discuss in a minute how he ended up choosing the Chevron location in Eretz Yisrael. Um, and he becomes the main mover and shaker to get this done, to be able to uh, to get this operation uh, up and moving, up and running. Ramiya Mordechai Epstein obviously backs it from America. He starts raising money for the project. The altar Slobotka eventually comes on board as well and he and it goes both ways. The Altar Slobotka ends up encouraging Rabbi Mordechai Epstein in the project and and vice versa at different stages of the process. um on his initial tour to see where the correct location should be is accompanied by the other prize, another prize Talmud close student of the Altar Slobodka, Rubavrom Avram Grodzinski. Avram Grijinski who had grown up in Warsaw, and his father was a very, very famous Warsaw Jewish leader, Reb Itchik Radzinski, who is, ironically, actually at his grave, his kever today, in the Warsaw Jewish cemetery. And here we are talking about his son, Reb Avram Grudzinski. So he is a close Talmud of the Altar of Slobodka, and um, and he's sent along with Reb Chatzkel Sarna to, set, to find the location and to set up the initial base of the yeshiva, which they both do. And Rabbi is actually supposed to be um, to be sent, sent along to set up the yeshiva, which he does initially, but eventually he comes back to Slabatka, which we'll talk about in a minute, why he comes back to Slabatka, and he remains the mashgiach in the branch in Slabatka. The altar Slabatka never planned on sending the entire yeshiva there, um, he only was going to send people who were thre- directly threatened by the draft. He did not want to close down his yeshiva in slabatka. Um, he used this as, as an opportunity to separate two groups in yeshiva. He sent the older boys to Hebron, and he sent he kept the younger guys in slabatka um, And uh, he the main role, actually, uh, that the altar played in this whole operation was choosing which boys, and which staff would go to which branch. And it was his way of taking care of a lot of the inter-workings of the slabatki yeshiva and certain um, politics between the staff of the yeshiva at the same time. On the other hand, the initiative is coming from Reb Sarna, and he sets up the yeshiva there, and it actually takes quite a while for Morsha Mordechai Epstein and the altar to show up in Chevron. So the yeshiva essentially becomes um, Reb Sarna's. And it's, it becomes his yeshiva. And he also chose the location. So the question is, how do you end up choosing a place like Hebron? Um, they, he could have chosen the two the two more obvious locations that would have been, was it would either be to Yerushalayim, to what was called the Yishuv Hayashon, the old Yishuv, or to one of the settlements in the new Yishuv, in the Tel Aviv area, mainly a place Petach Tikva, which was a religious yeshiva at the time. And they had invited the yeshiva. They encouraged the yeshiva to settle there. And everyone was kind of fighting over who would get the privilege of hosting the Slabatki Yeshiva. It was prestige. It might have led to a boost in the economy for various different reasons that we won't get into. And um, people vied for the opportunity of hosting them. Rabbi Sarna himself, in his memoirs, he explains that he did not want to come to... The to Jerusalem for two reasons. Number one, the uh, dispute between Rav Cook, the Rav of Jerusalem, the Rabbi of Yerushalayim, Chief Rabbi of Jerusalem, and Rav Chaim Zunfeld who was the Rav of the Edeh Charedis community in Jerusalem, was at its peak at the time, and he did not want Slabodka to get involved in that. It was it was it didn't it wasn't good for educational purposes, political purposes. It was messy. And the second reason that um, he didn't want to go to Yerushalayim is because Slabatka, the way the altar had educated his students in the spirit of Godless Sa'adam, in the aristocracy of the yeshiva student, and the musr of Slabatka, they dressed a certain way, they were clean-shaven, they looked modern, and that would not fit in well with the Yishuv Hayash and the old Yishuv in Yerushalayim as well. So it boils it down to Petach Tikva or some other place, and the some other place that came up was Hebron. The Jewish community in Chevron very much wanted the the uh, the yeshiva to come there, and there was uh, advantages and disadvantages to each to each place. Ultimately, he decides on Chevron. It's more secluded. It's not in the center of things. Petach Tikva was right near Tel Aviv. He also. Although he liked the idea of economic opportunity around, which in those days, ironically, in Petach Tikva was agricultural economic opportunity. If you go to Petach Tikva today, you'd be shocked to find out that Petach Tikva, once upon a time, was agricultural opportunity. But um, he also felt that that might be a threat. You know, the spirit of the new yishuv was to settle the land, to farm the land, and people might just leave the yeshiva just too quickly to be able to be part of that that pioneering spirit that was very prevalent at the time. So ultimately, for that and also several other reasons, Hevron had like a mystique to it. was old. It was ancient. It was holy. The the Avis were buried there in Marosamachpela, and they decided for other reasons as well. And Reb Al-Sarna ultimately decides on Chevron. The Alter Slabatka brings most of the staff to Hevron. Eventually Robert Hirsch Heller, the Mashkiach comes, and um, he also brings the young and rising superstar of the Yeshiva staff, his son Meishe Finkel. Now Meishe Finkel the, he seemed to be the future of the entire Slabatki Yeshiva. He was the son of the altar. He was actually the prized son of the altar. Reb Kul Sarna again wrote in his memoirs that even though the altar of Slobatcha loved all his children, but there was a special place in his heart for Reb Meishe Finkel. And he was very charismatic. He was well-liked. He was well-known in the yeshiva. Not only that, but in a, a he also married the daughter of Reb Meishe Motech Epstein. So it kind of unified the... Epstein and Finkel families, making them one, and the future of the yeshiva would be in Rabbi Meisha Finkel's hands, and he was definitely brought in to the yeshiva in heaven to be in charge of that as well. Uh, the only one who he really left back in Slovatka was Reb Isaac Sher, his son-in-law, the author of Slovatka's son-in-law and it seemed like he would need some more help. There was other staff there, but he eventually decided to bring back his prized student, Rav Rom Grudzinski, who was sent originally with Rav Sarna to set up the yeshiva, and he brings him back to become the mashgiach of the branch in Slabatka. Rav Rom Grudzinski remained at the helm together with Rabbi Sher until he was tragically killed by the Nazis towards the end of the war when the Kovne um, Ghetto was liquidated. And he ended up there. Rabbi Isaac Sher managed to get out and rebuilt the Slabatki Yeshiva in Bnei Brak. Um, but that was the branch that remained in Slabotka. In the meantime, the altar and Ramei Shumat Epstein do not move right away. Rabbi Sarn is pretty much in charge. And it seems that the altar and Ramei Shumat Epstein are kind of pulling back, leaving room for the younger generation to become in charge, to step up to the plate, to um, really build the Yeshiva in a different way the altar and Rebbe are getting older, and this is kind of a new thing. It's a new yeshiva. Um, and then it gets sticky. Is it a new yeshiva, or is it, is it really just Slabatka moved over? How does the funding work for the yeshiva? Initially, Rebbe Shumatcha Ebshin, who who is collecting in America for the Slabatka yeshiva, eventually sends money to the new Chevron yeshiva. And it becomes a little complicated. Rebbe Chatzka Sarna changes the yeshiva's letterhead to Yeshiva's Chevron at the time, the main reason being for funding. He needed to separate it as a different entity because the funding going on in America mainly had to be made a distinction. Is this funding for the yeshiva still back in Slabotka under the guidance of Rabbi Isaac Sher? Or is this the new yeshiva that's pretty much under the guidance of Rabbi Sarna because the altar and Matkar pulling Matcha are pulling back and, and, um, and he creates this new entity, which for a while still kind of overlapped, especially when the altar was still alive, especially when Rabbi Shumatcha Epstein was still alive, because they were nominally in charge of both places still. Rabbi Matcha Epstein kept on visiting Slabatka back in Lithuania, because he was, in addition to his uh, being the head of the yeshiva, the yeshiva he was also the rabbi of the Slabatka Jewish community, and the succession of his being the rabbi there became a complicated story in itself. Rabbi Epstein and the altar eventually do make Aliyah, but they have a limited role. So this whole um, um, story is able to take place because the yeshiva is able to get to Eretz Yisrael, which wasn't so easy at the time either. So how do they even get there? So they apply for certificates from the Jewish agency. The Jewish agency... Is not initially not that excited to, to the Jewish Agency for Palestine. They wanted more productive workers. They wanted more pioneers. They apply some pressure, um, mainly through the efforts of Remeir Barilan, the youngest child of the Nitziv who is a, the head of the Mizrahi uh, party, close friends with Rami Shmatach Epstein, also from through the years of their work together, and Remeir Barilan prevails on the Jewish agency, who eventually provides the certificates. So the certificates, the visas, are provided by the Jewish agency for Palestine, who is headed by Chaim Weizmann, And it's with the encouragement of Rameir Barilan, the head of the Mizrahi. And this enables the Slabotki Yeshiva to come to Hebron. And they're initially given 100 certificates. Eventually they get some more. Some of the students get it privately. And they're able to come to Chevron, And everything seems rosy and dandy. And this is actually the good news. Um, eventually things get bad. We know that it culminates in the massacre in 1929, but we're not jumping ahead. This, that's going to come in a future podcast, hopefully the story of how it all ended in Chevron. But already a few months after the altar arrives in Chevron, things take a turn for the worse with a very, very tragic um, occurrence in the personal life of the altar of Slobodka. He's pulling back. He's preparing his son, who's Ramesha Matre Epstein's son-in-law, to become the new head of the yeshiva, together with Reb Sarna. And all of a sudden, at the age of 43, in a very sudden way, Ramesha Finkel dies, very suddenly, on Cholomoy Sukkis uh, of, of that year, 1925. It's already the beginning of Tafresh Pe'vav of the Hebrew year, but it's still 1925. And he dies suddenly, very tragic. The altar essentially never recovered from his son's untimely death and he regretted coming to Hebron. He thought maybe they should have gone somewhere else and he um, didn't know where the future of the yeshiva was going to head at that point. So it had very high hopes in the beginning, a very great start in the beginning with a lot of potential, a lot of future, and we'll find out hopefully next time what eventually happens with that. That was... This was Yehuda Geberer with Jewish History Soundbites podcast. You can email me at ygebss at gmail.com We can do tours together and learn about all these amazing places and people. Don't forget to subscribe now to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes or Spotify or Google Play. Don't miss an episode of our podcast. If you enjoy, give us a five-star rating. Share it with your friends and family. You can follow us also on Twitter at JSoundbytes, and we hope you enjoy.